Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Most of us have been together a long time. There are others that were here before that. Do you all not like me anymore? I mean, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. We do like you, Bill Murray. And so apparently does Wes Anderson, who has cast the actor in nine of his films going back to 1998. This week on the show, our top five actor-director duos since 2000. Actors and directors who have spent the last couple of decades making their best work, often with each other. All that and more. Hey, intern, get me a Campari. Ahead on Film Spotty. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, people who care about such things have spent the last week or so declaring the new Indiana Jones movie, Dial of Destiny, a bust, a box office flop. We're blameless, though. We both liked it, and we said so last week here on Film Spotting. We did our best to prop up this venerable franchise, Adam. And yeah, I am surprised at the dial, the vehemence against dial I've been seeing. I posted my Indiana Jones ranked list on Letterboxd and <laughs> It devolved into a diatribes about how terrible Dial of Destiny is. So that's all right. Let's just give it time. Okay. Five, maybe 10 years. I think you and I are going to look like we're on the right side of history with this one. That is such a good thought. And now I'm going to be mean and say, yeah, but in five to 10 years, I'm still going to look back at you putting it number two on that letterbox list ahead of the last crusade and think you're crazy. 
It was tight, as I said. It was not an easy choice. <laughs> Insane. Give me Marion. We, we need to move on. <laughs> Give me Marion, and you've got me. And I'm afraid that's what Dial did over your beloved. Sorry. Josh, she, she's mostly a picture on the fridge. Oh, I love that fridge touch. We didn't get into that. I do that. too, but that that recurring gag with the magnet and her picture, it's it's mm-hmm. a gag, but it's it's also sweet and it's very sad at the beginning and it it just brought her spirit into the movie so that it would work well when she yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're way off. We like Dial of Destiny. Let's just say okay. that and move on. Yeah. Sean Connery. Sean Connery Harrison Ford. I I I end Love it. My Great statement. Pairing. Number 3, very close. <laughs> Let's jump into this week's top 5. Actor-director duo since 2000 have set this up on previous episodes, a top five that was inspired by an actor-director duo that isn't actually eligible for our list. We both quite enjoyed the new Nicole Holofcener movie, You Hurt My Feelings, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and feel like after enough said and this most recent effort, it would be wonderful to see them continue to make movies together. I might be okay if Halvsoner only cast Julia Louis-Dreyfus in starring roles from here on out. It got me thinking about recent fertile collaborations like that and which ones are the best. It did feel like you needed at least three to really suggest that these are actors and directors who have worked consistently with each other and have a body of work that we can consider. So that is a rule we are applying to our list. But Sam, our producer, he threw this out in the newsletter this week for family members. He put it out on social media. If you think about those performers and directors who are maybe only in the one-time or especially two-time club, like Holofcener and Dreyfus, well, that could be its own top five as well. It's basically top five actor-director duos that must collaborate again. I think we'll get to that at some point here, too. I'm sure we will. Sam loves to have these manifesting top fives. I think we did do actor-director pairings we'd like to see at some point. And mm-hmm. so we're going to put some pressure on the creatives here to pair together again when we do get to that list at some point. Only duos from here on out for top fives. How many variations can we come up with? Oh, I mean, I see a future where we're doing every top five list we've ever done again, but we'll just say in the last 10 years, right? I mean, (laughs) we'll ride this thing to the 2050s that way. We deserve to do that. We deserve to get to do that if we keep doing the show long enough, I think, Josh. Another reason we did decide to do this list was looking ahead to the release of Oppenheimer, which features longtime Christopher Nolan collaborator Killian Murphy in a lead role after a plethora of supporting turns. The two have worked together on five previous films, and those are such good collaborations that longtime listener Josh Youngerman sent us a voicemail making the case for Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan as, in fact, one of the best actor-director duos since 2000. Hey, Film Spotting. This is Josh Youngerman calling in from Brooklyn, New York to give my pick for a performer director duo. So, my pick is Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan. Um, I think, you know, obviously Murphy's only been in sort of supporting parts for Nolan, but he always stands out, uh, whether it's his crazy, weird work in the Dark Knight trilogy as Scarecrow to his really uh, subtle and emotionally impactful work as. Uh, the businessman in, uh, in Inception, which in many ways he's the heart of that movie. Uh, and then in Dunkirk, where he's only in the film for 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, it's it's a haunting performance. And I really just, you know, I can't shake that character's face. Um, 
when I think about that film. And I just think these two are just so perfectly suited for each other. They just work so well together. Um, and, you know, Murphy being, I think, in many ways, the ultimate character actor, he just fits so perfectly into what Nolan is doing, sort of the world that he's creating. Um, and you see just the, the wide variety of performances, characters that he's played. Um, and I'm really excited to get it to see him get a leading part finally in Oppenheimer, which I think will be amazing. Thank you for kicking off our list here, Josh, with that voicemail. If you just had the Batman films to go on, you'd still have to consider Murphy and some of these other Nolan collaborators. But when you throw in the role in Inception, that role in Dunkirk, I'm with Josh. I think about that character's face a lot as well from that very good film. Like a lot of people, I love the fact that he's getting a chance to be the main guy in this new one. Yeah, I think that's probably the place to go with Nolan is to choose Murphy. Christian Bale might seem like the obvious choice, but for me at least, he's I've always been kind of neutral on him in the manner that he's a neutral presence for me in those really great Batman films. I don't think he necessarily elevates them to why I love them so much. I don't think he's a negative presence in it. He's neutral. So I think it makes more sense to go with someone like Murphy who does bring something, a unique quality um, whenever he works with Nolan. I think this will help transition into our list. Another thing about Nolan and some of these actors you've mentioned, not just Murphy and Bale, but Tom Hardy, of course, Michael Caine and Gary Oldman too, if you think about those Batman films. The fact that there are so many good options under one director, so many frequent collaborators, so many actors who are part of a regular ensemble, it either means they all have to be considered for this list or you really should parse it and figure out the one that stands out. Or maybe that's a good reason why they really shouldn't be eligible for this list. For me, that was the case, meaning I don't want to think about so many actors who fit with a certain director. I want that one collaboration, that pairing where you almost can't imagine one without the other. Fair. Yeah, fair. I think in the case where I did go that direction, I would also describe the results in that manner. You can't imagine the one without the other, despite the fact that this director, which we'll get to, does work with a large, regular ensemble. And yeah, speaking to how hard this was, you know, I just realized I didn't mention the prestige, which obviously Nolan exactly. did with Bale and is probably Bale's mm -hmm. best Nolan performance, a movie we both love. Um, so this was very, very difficult. And I just want to say quick thanks at the top to our PA, Betty Levandero, who put together a working document of pretty much every possibility we had for this list because it was massive, despite the fact that we're only looking back at the last two decades the options seemed endless when I first sat down to take on this task. Yeah, and our listeners as well on social media and via email threw out a bunch of really good reminders. Now, Betty's work was so thorough that I think I saw only one or two that she had to add to the list, but it really was a group effort here. And we didn't have a lot of criteria or rules to apply to narrow it down other than the three or more collaborations. The only other one I really paid attention to, I mean, I'll get into my criteria, but as far as restrictions, I didn't consider TV series or short films. So as much as I love David Lynch and as much as I love Naomi Watts in David Lynch films, you've got Mulholland Drive, you've got Inland Empire. 
The other two are Rabbits, the 2002 short, and Twin Peaks, The Return from 2017, which I know some people want to put on lists and call it cinema. That's fine. I'll call it cinema too. I'm just not going to call it a movie for the purposes of this list. Yeah, I was working with those restrictions as well. I also set aside a couple pairings that did make my list in 2014 when Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune and I did our all-time actor-director pairings list. So there are two there. Would be eligible technically for this list. Didn't make the cut. Uh, One of them, Johnny Depp and Tim Burton, it was easy for me here. Their best work was all done before 2000. So they were easy to set aside. A little harder was Tony Leung and Wong Kar Wai. Somewhat similar. Um, They've only made three films since 2000, Mm -hmm. but, you know, In the Mood for Love is in. One of them is In the Mood for Love. Is in the running. So that was a little more difficult. I think if I had not had them on that earlier list, I probably would have them here. For me, I didn't have them on an earlier list like that, but I did feature them as an honorable mention here because it was only three films. And I think it would have helped if I liked The Grandmaster a lot more than I do, but 2046 and In the Mood for Love, very good. Tony Leung, Juan Carwai films. Let's get into then the actor-director duos that did make our list. You're number five. Okay, and a quick word or two about some criteria because I did really need to find some ways to wrap my head around this one. You could go quantity or you could go quality. Those things did pop into mind about how to think about this. Do you talk about the movies themselves? What do you what do you value more, the movies themselves or the performances themselves? Hmm. That's another way to think about it. For me, it's something we've already touched on that became the most important, the guiding principle, what they bring out in each other. So if you take both creatives' entire careers and look, you could say that maybe something is missing in the actors' performances with other directors. Likewise, maybe something is missing in the director's films with other actors. Doesn't mean all those efforts are bad, but maybe there's a certain quality that is only there when they're working together and it's definitive. So you can't imagine one being as good without the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think that's where I landed in, in making some of these tougher choices. I don't know if I got quite as cerebral as you, but I did apply the quantity and quality test. I considered both. So if I did have a duo that only had three collaborations and another one that had six, really good chance that the six was going to have a greater shot at my list. But if the six films were just pretty good and those other three were great or all masterpieces, well, that would be something I'd have to reckon with. So the numbers did matter, but quality won out over all else. For me, it really came down to the multiplex test that we have talked about a lot and applied a lot over the years. If all I know about a movie, I'm walking into a multiplex, I've got five, 10, 15 theaters. All I know is what it says above the theater. And what it says is the actor and the director, the duo in question. I can only go to one movie, which theater am I walking into? After that, which would be the second one I'd walk into? That's what I really considered as I went through my choices. And then there's a third idea that's actually expressed by one of the actors on my list that we'll get to as we proceed through the top five. So hit me, give me a duo. All right, yeah, let's get to our picks. Actor Song Kang-ho teaming with director Bong Joon-ho. So since 2000, we have three films here. Memories of Murder, four films actually, excuse me, four films. Memories of Murder, The Host, Snowpiercer, and then of course, 
Parasite. Did a little homework for this one, Adam, because I saw them as a possibility, thought of them as a possibility, and realized I have not yet seen Memories of Murder. So why not now? Just watched it yesterday, and it did make the difference between these two and the two who got bumped to my number six, my first honorable mention we'll get to. And I had to put Song Kang-ho and Bong Joon-ho on this list. Memories of Murder, I will say, is interesting because I think Song's performance there is in a bit of a different register than those other collaborations with Bong. It's a very dark serial killer thriller that really evolves to become about police corruption. I mean, it's about that from the beginning, but you don't quite fully understand that until the last third is that was my experience of it and song here he's it's a more serious part he plays a rural investigator who's got a lot of personality right from the start as you'd expect you see that he's not just your generic dour cop um, but he's playing this rural investigator who's in over his head when a number of women in the area are raped and murdered over the course of several months and this is a guy who's usually employs physical abuse, coercion, intimidation, but all those tactics are just not working in this case, which leaves him something at a loss. This is a very unlikable character compared to the others he plays with in Bong films, but he still has a hint of goofiness to him. Uh, We see it, there's a scene where he has a karaoke performance and that quality comes to the fore a little bit, which kind of makes his abusive side more disturbing to me. I do think it's that quality And I think playfulness is probably a better word than goofiness that defines Song and Bong's later collaborations. You think about his slacker father he plays in The Host, that blasé engineer in Snowpiercer, and then maybe his best performance for in a Bong film, his con man patriarch in Parasite. These are all different genres to a degree. Song brings a certain silliness that matches Bong's own fleetness. I think his ability as a director to jump among genres speaks to this quality too. It's it's something that uh, Song shares as a performer and, and Bong shares as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you can see this quality also in other Song performances. It was definitely there in last year's Broker from Hirokazu Koreeda, but it's with Bong that we get that hand-in-glove fit. That brings me back to my criteria. They've been at their best from what I've seen when they've been together. Great pick. As you know, I had these two as my number five, and they were bumped out just at the last minute. You make a really compelling case. Parasite, of course, is a masterpiece, but all four of those movies are very good, and I'm really glad that you caught up with Memories of Murder finally, and sounds like that's what cemented this spot on your list. Yeah, definitely did, and now I'm eager to hear um, who they got bumped for. (laughs) Well, I don't think you'll begrudge me the choice too much, even though, obviously, you went in a different direction. And this notion of how difficult it is in your mind to separate actor and director, how, how closely you link the two, that's something that really applies to this number five pick. And it is always about how difficult it is to separate the director from the actor, right? Because it can't go the other way. Performers are inevitably going to be part of so many more projects and work with so many other directors. Case in point, since this actor and director first worked together back in 07, the director has made four other features. The actor has 75 IMDb credits. The director is Jeff Nichols, 
who has cast Michael Shannon in all five of his films and has a sixth one coming out featuring Shannon. Shannon was this really interesting face, and I mean that kind of literally, who popped up in movies like Tigerland and Eight Mile in the early 2000s, but I don't know that most people were registering him as a face to watch or that they clocked his name and were looking forward to future projects by Michael Shannon. I think the first time I knew his name as an actor was 2006 because he starred in the movie Bug opposite Ashley Judd, the adaptation of the Tracy Let's Play. That same year, he was in World Trade Center, the Oliver Stone film. We did review both of those films here on the show. If you look at all the credits, and he had a fair amount of movie appearances prior to 2006, Bug's really the only one that you could say was a major role. I mean, there are only two roles in that entire film, Bug, but I still think Ashley Judd's character is really the lead. It takes Nichols to come along and recognize that you can build an entire film around Michael Shannon with Shotgun Stories in 2007 and then Take Shelter in 2011 where he stars opposite Jessica Chastain. We didn't review Shotgun Stories when it came out in 07 here on Film Spotting. It was under the radar. We overlooked it. I only saw it after seeing and loving Take Shelter in 2011. And those are still my two favorite Jeff Nichols movies, but I was really positive on Mud. I was positive as well on Midnight Special and Loving. So you've got five good to great movies there, and you've got two wonderful lead performances in Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter. I think Midnight Special also would qualify as a lead performance from Shannon. And maybe Michael Shannon was in my mind, Josh, because I did just listen yesterday on a long car ride. I listened to Dak Shepard's interview with Michael Shannon on Armchair Expert on that podcast. And he tells an incredible story about working or almost working with Sidney Poitier early in his career. He's like 17 or 18, Michael Shannon. It's a to sir with love two project. Okay. It's, it's really a terrible, it sounds like TV movie. I assume it did get made. I never saw it. He got fired after one day. Michael Shannon did. He's doing this scene with Poitier. It's not working. Poitier is going to Peter Bogdanovich, the director, but he's not going to Shannon and saying, what's wrong? So there's a little break in the action, and Shannon goes up to him and introduces himself and very earnestly explains, you know, I really want to make this work, and if you could just tell me what's going on, I'm happy to, to try to fix it. <laughs> and Poitier says to him, I don't know what your technique is, but you're weird. <laughs> and that's it. That's all he got from the man. I think sounds accurate. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Where <laughs> that comes from, where that instinct to say that comes from. I think more charitably, you could describe Shannon as a uniquely intense presence. And that's how he was mainly used up to this point. He was someone who he would, he would show up and play scary or super intense or legitimately weird characters. And Nichols somehow saw in him an everyman, a really complex, fascinating everyman. When asked about their collaboration once, I think, doing promotion for Midnight Special, he, he went to Jimmy Stewart. Jeff Nichols actually invoked Jimmy Stewart and said, you can just do a slow push-in on Jimmy Stewart's face and there's something going on there. And Michael Shannon does that as well, but he says it's also kind of inscrutable. 
He can transmit so much, Nichols says, but he can also hide so much from you. Dad? Yeah. Are you scared? Yes. You don't have to worry about me. I like worrying about you. You don't have to anymore. I'll always worry about you, Alan. That's the deal. Nichols says he just has kind of this secret weapon, he feels like, in Shannon, where when he needs to convey something really difficult with some ambiguity, but he also wants the audience to take away something specific or feel something specific, he knows he can just go to a close-up of Michael Shannon and he's going to deliver the goods, which is why they have worked together through five films. And as I said, the bike riders, according to this interview, Shannon said he just got picture lock on it. So I don't know what the release date is or whether or not that'll be this year or not, but it's coming. Another Jeff Nichols, Michael Shannon collab. That's good to hear. And an interesting choice, uh, a, a good choice. I'm with you on all those films, Take Shelter in particular. Uh, and this is one where you wonder if another director would have been able to not even bring out what Shannon has, but give him the chance to become who he is now, who we think right. of him now. And it was so fortuitous that way. It, it speaks to to the weird point, right? Is what other directors would have seen past the quote unquote weirdness and you have to think we wouldn't have the Michael Shannon we do today if it had not been for working with Jeff Nichols. We wouldn't. Now, other cases, like my number four, I think are these actors would have become stars to different degrees, no matter what. Michael Shannon, you could see kind of laboring fruitfully in supporting parts for the mm -hmm. rest of his career. Michael B. Jordan, he was going to become a star. I mean, that that was pretty clear. I think working right off very early in his career, at least with Ryan Coogler, elevated his opportunity and his talent and his potential, which has only paid off more since they did start working together in 2013 with Fruitvale Station. That was followed up with Creed, then Black Panther, of course, and Jordan is in Black Panther Wakanda forever. But it's really those first three films that put this pairing at number four on my list. When I was reviewing Fruitvale Station, this is where Jordan played Oscar Grant, who was shot and killed in 2009 by transit police in Oakland, California. I wrote this. What's remarkable about Jordan's portrayal and the film itself is the way both understand that good and bad are intertwined within the human heart. And it's interesting to me looking back now, obviously having no idea we'd be doing a list like this, that I threw in that little phrase and the film itself. I think that speaks to something I was picking up about the closeness, the hand in glove fit in terms of trying to get after a singular thing in Fruitvale Station. And looking back now, 10 years, a few collaborations later, I do think that's what they've done together in each of their movies. Certainly, when you consider Black Panther's Eric Killmonger, we touched on this, Adam, when we did, it was, our, it was a draft, right? MCU Best Villains. Mm -hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking about Eric Killmonger, um, that, that sympathetic bad guy quality. That's a variation on what they were doing in Fruitvale Station, not, not calling Oscar Grant a bad guy, but giving us that complicated persona. I do think that the Adonis Creed they gave us is more layered than your usual sports movie hero. So you see those complications there. 
as well. Now, going back to Fruitvale, there's that definitive scene for me where Oscar, he returns to a grocery store where he used to work. He's hoping to get his job back. And this sequence begins with him being helpful and charming to a woman shopping who's who's having trouble trying to figure out what fish she wants to fry for a party she's having. So we see that that side of him, that gregarious, um, polite side. But then, right after that, he approaches his former boss, grabs him by the arm, and tries to get his job back. And then we see this other side. Yeah, uh, I just want to talk to you for a sec. It's a little nuts right now, holiday and all. Look, I want to talk about my job. The position's been filled. Look, look, I mean, I, I, look, I really need this job. All right? I was going through some before trying to get back on my feet, you feel me? But I need this. You can start me off with one shift a week or whatever. I'll be here working 40 hours, only payments for 20. Dude, I hired somebody else. For me to bring you back, that means I have to let someone else go. Someone who's never showed up late once. I'm sorry. I like you, man, but I can't do I need do. this job, bruh. You want me selling dope, bruh? Oscar. You need me outside waiting for you to get done, bruh? Now, Coogler has yet to make a film without Jordan, even, you know, he was in Wakanda only briefly, but still has yet to make a film without Jordan. So this will be interesting, right? We don't really know what that looks like. You touched on this earlier, the, the difference between considering actors and directors in their careers. Jordan, on the other hand, he's done other stuff. I've, I've seen a few. I've seen Just Mercy and Chronicle was sort of his breakout, but those just don't, for me, have that complication and the sophistication of his work with Kugler. Obviously, I'm a fan of both actor and director as well. This was more of a numbers game for me when considering the duo. Really love Creed. Big fan of Black Panther as well. One of the better MCU films, I think. As you know, I'm less enamored with Fruitvale Station, not quite as high on that film as you are. And so just having those three, it it wasn't quite enough to beat out some other folks on my list, such as my number four duo, an actor who connects right back to Michael Shannon. He's also in Midnight Special. He's an actor who can also be an intense presence, and I think you could safely say is kind of an unconventional leading man. And like Shannon with Nichols, this duo has also made five movies together, all of them good to great. The actor is Adam Driver, the director, Noah Baumbach. The movies, Francis Ha in 2012, While We're Young 2014, The Meyerowitz Stories then in 17, Marriage Story in 2019, and more recently discussed here on Film Spotting, White Noise from 2022. I think here you have to give a little bit of credit to Baumbach, just as I was, just as we were with Nichols, identifying some qualities in Michael Shannon. I think just as we were giving Jeff Nichols some credit for seeing something in Michael Shannon that other casting directors or other filmmakers weren't. We have to say that about Noah Baumbach. And I'm not an expert on Adam Driver's filmography or the exact arc of his career. But if you look at IMDb, and I remember how I came to him as a viewer, before he's Kylo Ren, or before he's getting nominated for Oscars, like he did for Marriage Story, he broke out in 2012 on Girls, the TV show with Lena Dunham. That same year was Francis Ha. And 
than While We're Young in 2014, a movie where Ben Stiller is the lead, and I think he's very good, but that Adam Driver character, Jamie, is the most memorable character and easily the most hilarious character in the film. He really drives all the action forward. What followed from there, Josh, was Star Wars and Midnight Special. And not only working with filmmakers like Jeff Nichols, but Jim Jarmusch with Patterson and Scorsese in Silence and Baumbach again in The Meyerowitz Stories, Soderbergh, Logan Lucky, Spike Lee, Black Klansman. But I wonder if we would be here with Driver. I mean, he certainly has the talent, but as we know, Hollywood and these careers aren't always about your talent. I wonder if Driver would be where he is today if it wasn't for Baumbach seeing in him something that others simply didn't and putting him in Francis Ha, putting him in While We're Young. And then we get that collaboration on Marriage Story, which truly was that. If you go back and look at some of their interviews together and some of the promotional tour for it, Baumbach is very open about saying he had like three nuggets of ideas for Marriage Story. And he knew it had to be Adam Driver. And he brought them to him just to get his reaction to it, just to get kind of his gut take on it and the character and help him flesh it all out, really bring the character to life for him to finish the writing process. And he talks about him as a guide, someone who he went to not only on the phone, but also in his mind when he's writing the part and he's finishing the film, he's thinking about it all through the prism of Adam Driver, what he's going to do with the character. And in one interview, Driver said, here's that line I was referencing that I think you could apply as a little bit of a test to your choices. Driver said, it would not be a career wasted if I just found a way to work on Baumbach's movies until I died. That might be hyperbole, right? We'd all feel a little deprived of something if Adam Driver only made Noah Baumbach movies once every three or four years. But I could probably live with it. I think the work would be rich enough and rewarding enough. And even look at something like White Noise, which a lot of people didn't go for and is a movie that on paper should not work. And yet it does because there's something about the sensibilities of these two artists and how they mesh with each other that makes that absurd satire feel grounded. Could you talk about the Stauffenberg July 20 plot kill Hitler? All plots move deathward. This is the nature of plots. Political plots, terrorist plots, lovers plots, narrative plots, plots that are a part of children's games. We edge nearer to death every time we plot. Like a contract, all must sign. The plotters, as well as the targets of the plot. Totally with you on Marriage Story. He's incredible there. Big fan of Driver overall. But but I have to ask, and maybe Marriage Story is the distinction. Why you didn't go? And I didn't end up going this way myself. But why you didn't go with Greta Gerwig as the choice here? Because I think their collaboration is one where even though she's got the titles, right? If you're just doing the, the criterion we applied, she is in Greenberg. She's obviously in Francis Ha. She's in Mistress America. 
Meyerowitz stories is an uncredited voice. I don't think we can count that. And then she's in White Noise as well. I like all of those films, but when you look at Marriage Story, While We're Young, a movie and a performance where I know you're not as high on that film as I am, but you surely walked out of it and still said, this Adam Driver guy is someone I have to keep an eye on. I can't wait to see him in other films. Funnily enough, I was kind of annoyed by him. Yeah, I, I know you were annoyed by the which character. Which is one of the reasons, yeah, that movie didn't work as well. But that, yeah, that's the distinction as you're describing it. I think of, you know, probably Mistress America and Francis Ha and even White Noise. As much as I appreciate Marriage Story, overall, for Baumbach, I, I've ranked higher and Gerwig such a crucial part of of, you know, for sure, yeah. Francis Ha and Mistress America. So it's yeah. a tough, it's a tough choice it here is. going with one over the other. Yeah, marriage story really is the deciding factor for me over Mistress America, even though I also am a big fan of that film. And I also just think I think of the Gerwig Baumbach collaboration differently because of the fact that you see them really as partners, which they are. You see them as as people who are working together as directors as fellow directors and as writers, I see them more in that realm, whereas I see Driver and Baumbach as purely an actor-director collaboration. Okay. My number three is, looking at my list now, Adam, I mentioned how you were talking about directors who work with vast ensembles, often frequently of the same people. And I said, well, there's one where I think that's the case, but they embody each other so much I had to pick them. This one at my number three slot, I don't know that I would say this actor embodies these directors who do fit that category, working with vast ensembles, many people. But I I had to have someone who worked with the Coen brothers, nonetheless, three or more times since the year 2000. And Man, was this tough. It came down to two choices for me. Joel and Ethan Cohen, since 2000, have worked with Josh Brolin three times. No Country for Old Men, True Grit, Hail Caesar, if you're counting features. They've worked with George Clooney four times. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Intolerable Cruelty, Burn After Reading, Hail Caesar. Man, I'm going to be on the outside looking in from most people's choices here, but it's Clooney. And here are my reasons. I love George Clooney's self-deprecating comic side, and I think the Coens bring that out of him better than anyone. I will admit I've softened in my enthusiasm for Intolerable Cruelty over the years, but I still like it better than anyone I know, and that's largely because of Clooney. I think he's fantastic there. And then Hail Caesar. Top five Coens for me, and yes, Brolin, wonderful in the lead role of studio fixer Eddie Mannix, but Clooney's Baird Whitlock, the the Hollywood icon who's anchoring the Bible epic of the title, he is more closely aligned to why I love Hail Caesar so much as an overall film. I think this movie is the lodestar for what's theologically intriguing about the Coen Brothers movies to me, and that is something that can be summed up in that hilarious teasing scene of Clooney at the cross. Here, Gracchus, in this sun-drenched land, why should he not take this form, the form of an ordinary man, a man bringing us not the old truths, but a new one? A new truth? A truth beyond the truth that we can see. A truth beyond this world. A truth told not in words, but in light. A truth that we could see if we had but... If we had but... Time! Time! 
faith. How about faith? Faith. 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 Isn't it? They changed it. Got most of it, man. All right. All right. Hang on. You got most of it, man. I love the, the, the encouragement he gets there. But yeah, this is Clooney again, somewhat playing the fool as the Coens take us just to the edge of a spiritual epiphany and then using using Clooney's tomfoolery, yanking us right back out of it. I really wanted to go with Brolin. I know Sam in his newsletter to film spotting family members went out this week. He is particularly high on Brolin. I was happy to see that Sam is higher than ever on Hail Caesar after a recent rewatch. But for me, it is George Clooney as the collaborator with the Coen since 2000. Yeah. And for me, it was Brolin. Even before I read Sam's take in the newsletter, looking at those ensemble members that recur in Coen Brothers movies, it was the fact that he was in No Country, True Grit, and Hail Caesar, all three films that I like a lot. No Country for Old Men being one of my top two or three, at the very least, Coen Brothers films. Those three just for me outrank Clooney's work, looking not only at what he does in Hail Caesar, but I've long said Burn After Reading is a movie I need to revisit badly. Oh, Brother, where art thou? Please do. I've never, I've never put in the same tier as you and some others. Another one I need to revisit only saw once in the theater. And then I just caught myself. I was about to say, I've never seen intolerable cruelty. I think I have. I think the lady killers is the only cone film I've never seen, but intolerable cruelty is definitely last on the list. And that's why Clooney for me didn't, didn't quite merit consideration, Josh. Yeah, he's he's so good in Burn After Reading, which does deserve a revisit because I it grew in my estimation, too, uh, the more times I watched it. So definitely worth looking at again. I've touched on this a couple times. I don't think you have to apply this test to your list, but it works with Brolin and the Cones, too. Go back to 07. He was already, Brolin was already starting his resurgence a bit. That was the year of In the Valley of Ella, and he was in American Gangster. He was in the Planet Terror part of Grindhouse, but No Country, of course, was the big breakout performance. And here again, we see how many movies Josh Brolin has been in, how good he has been in so many movies since 2007. If the Coen brothers didn't take a chance on him and didn't see that he could carry that movie the way he does, and I mean, I know you've got... Anton Chigurh, and you've got great performances by Javier Bardem and Tommy Lee Jones and others. But the heart of that film, obviously, is Brolin's character. Without him being so good and without the Coen brothers, would Josh Brolin be where he's at today? Yeah, possibly not. My number three, Josh, is Michelle Williams and Kelly Reichert. Four movies together since 2008. Wendy and Lucy, Meek's Cutoff, Certain Women, and most recently showing up. Of course, listeners know I talked to Reichert here on the show about showing up. I also did a post-screening Q&A with her here in Chicago. And Williams had some really flattering things to say in the press notes about Reichert. She said, Kelly usually just sends me a text like, I've got something for us. Are you around? And my answer before I even read a thing is always yes, because it's such a great honor not only to work with her, but to keep accumulating these different experiences with her. After four films together, I feel like being part of her work is one of the biggest contributions I've made to movies in my lifetime. So quite a pronouncement there from Michelle Williams. And when I asked Kelly Reichert 
to respond or or give some praise back. She wasn't quite able to match it. I think she was a little overwhelmed by hearing that out loud in front of a crowd of people. I got more out of her, fortunately, during an interview when I talked to her about certain women. I'll get to that in a moment. But I think that the same terms and phrases we're using with some of these performers applies here to Williams, certainly thinking about Michael Shannon and Adam Driver. Her expressiveness, the nuances and the layers she brings to her performances, the empathy she brings to her performances. Michelle Williams is one of those cheat codes for a director where if you know you just need to rely on a close-up to convey something complicated, Michelle Williams can do it. And you don't have to say anything. And unlike Baumbach and Jeff Nichols, who are wordier writers and directors, there's a lot of space and a lot of silence in Kelly Reichert's film. So you really do need a performer like Michelle Williams who can carry that burden and convey so much. When I interviewed her for certain women, I asked her what that collaboration is like, how she works with Michelle Williams in terms of making specific choices. And I'm sure that Reichert was being deliberately kind of reductive here and not trying to unpack everything they do on set together. But she summed it up as mostly it's just giving Michelle the space to do what Michelle wants to do. And when you have an actor who has the talent Michelle Williams does, and you have a director who is so in sync with those sensibilities and they approach the work the same way, that's when you can get away with that. They don't spend a lot of time rehearsing. Her projects don't allow for that. The budget and the timing doesn't allow for that. So they really do have to be in lockstep from the very beginning. If you look at Williams in these four films, very different films, very different characters, but characters who are seekers, characters who are, it seems, looking for some type of authentic existence. They're craving authenticity. They're searching for happiness, whatever that means. They're searching for meaning. And then you get to a film like Showing Up, where, of course, you have an artist who is seeking that authenticity in everything she does and in all of her sculptures. I want to see so many more performances from Michelle Williams, but that Adam Driver test, if if it was only Reichert and Williams from here on out, she only appeared in Reichert's films, I think I could live with that. Sometimes I get the sense you don't care for me much, Miss Tethero. Oh, I have no feelings one way or the other, Mr. Meek. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's just a kind way of saying you don't like me. I don't like where we are. So that's what you think, that we're lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're not lost, we're just finding our way. I certainly hope so. We're gonna make it all right. Oh, you don't need to patronize me, Mr. Meek. Well, now, well, now I think you're flirting with me, ma'am. You don't know much about women, do you, Stephen Meek? No argument for me. This is the pair that got bumped, uh, unfortunately, from number five after I saw Memories of Murder and and slotted in Song Kang-ho and Bong Joon-ho. Um, yeah, Meek's cutoff itself, <laughs> for me, um, is at such a level of reverence that I really wanted it. I really wanted to put them on here no matter what other films they made together. And while I do like Wendy and Lucy, Certain Women, and Showing Up, all three of those 
they are just a different different sort of tier for me. And so that was the only justification I could find, but have no qualms with you putting them on your list. Really glad to see them there. We have not yet seen, however, Bill Murray. He's he's still worried, Adam. He's worried he's he's been left out. We're going to find out if he does make either of our lists when we come back. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Your life will always matter more to me than my own. None of our lives can matter more than this mission. I don't accept that. Tom Cruise does not accept that, Josh. Okay? He doesn't accept it. And are you going to argue with him? No, whatever you say, Tom. (laughs) That's from the trailer for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which, as we're recording this, is currently playing in theaters. Ecstatic reports from friends and colleagues are rolling in across Letterboxd. We're doing our best to ignore those because we have yet to see it, but we will see it in time for next week's show. I'm assuming that you've reserved your 4D experience. What would that even look like, (laughs) a 4D experience with Mission Impossible? We can only imagine. No, I've gone the other direction. I've ordered. <laughs> my daughter is a friend who works, um, you know, for for doing sound for concerts, and I've ordered recommended by her earplugs <laughs> that she wears because I've been to enough. And I don't think this is the movie's fault. It's po- probably more the theater's fault. I've been to enough big films like this where it's just overwhelming noise and i've heard from people that they actually use these and it brings the decibels down just a little bit where you're not being as assaulted so no i'm not going 4d adam i'm going for the earplug <laughs> experience of mission impossible dead reckoning i'll let you know how it works you're, out you're going for minus 4db <laughs> exactly. that's the experience you're yes. having and i you're, should clarify no i i am not 76 i was gonna say you're giving us the least rock and roll sentiment you've ever expressed on this show. Grandpa <laughs> I try. Josh. I try. Also next week, some poll results. The current film spotting poll asks you to save only part of the Mission Impossible franchise. The first four films, all from different directors, or the previous two, Fallout and Rogue Nation, which were directed by Dead Reckoning's Christopher McQuarrie. The people, Josh, they seem to like their Christopher McQuarrie Mission Impossibles. As they should, I leaned that direction without doing a lot of, you know, research into my own thoughts on the 48 other Mission Impossible movies. Have since done that. And yeah, reading what I wrote about them, what resonated with me, I do think that's the way you have to go. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. 
if you're heading to see Dead Reckoning, and we're sure that almost all of you are, we do encourage you to reserve your seat before the show on Fandango. It is the only app I use to book my movie tickets online. You can find times, read reviews, and buy tickets to your favorite theater fast and easy on the Fandango app. That's what I use, or Fandango.com. Of course, you can see what's playing near you. You can watch the trailers. You grab your seat. All that you have left to do is choose butter or no butter, except that's that's not a choice. It's it's always butter. Always butter. Every movie, every feeling, every time, that's Fandango, your one-stop shop before showtime. Get those tickets to Dead Reckoning now on the Fandango app or Fandango.com. Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It is part two of their Separate Ways pairing, which I think they put together just to kiss up to Adam because they're looking at Celine Song's past lives mm-hmm. with John Carney's Once. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. And new episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like some more information, go to nextpictureshow.net. We also want to give you a quick reminder that you can help us reach new listeners. All you have to do is leave a rating or a positive review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We want to thank one user who left some kind words for us this past week. That would be Kaylee S. Kaylee wrote this, Josh and Adam have the kind of conversation that makes me want to jump in and give my two cents. If you ever want the opinion of a mid-20s girl in Salt Lake who has little to no film experience other than the podcast and a well-loved letterbox, give me a call. I'll be a guest. But really, this pod has made me view both myself and films differently. I've loved analyzing movies and scenes that touch me and why and adding films to my list based on Josh and Adam's recommendations. Thanks for all the work you put into making such great content. A great listen for any level of movie buff. Thanks so much, Kaylee. Really great to hear. And it's really great to get that kind of support, Josh. Over the years, we've gotten it in so many ways. You can do it by leaving a comment, just like Kaylee did on Apple Podcasts, or you could download the Fandango app if you haven't already and give that a try. Of course, patronizing our sponsors does help the show out, or you can join the film spotting family. You can listen to the show early and ad free. You get that weekly newsletter from our producer, Sam. You also get monthly bonus shows, really fun June bonus show. Ask us anything. Got into a lot of great questions from our family members. I've got a pretty good idea. I think for July bonus content, which Josh, I will share with you and Sam at our upcoming production meeting. Oh, this is how he gets us to show up for those meetings. That's right. (laughs) Donuts and, I give you a, <laughs> virtual, a compelling virtual tease. donuts. <laughs> Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can learn more. All right, let's play a little massacre theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t shirt. A couple of weeks back, we massacred this scene. Any more thoughts about who you might marry? <laughs> I ain't doing that again. I had two marriages. It just cost the studio a lot of money to bust them up. Well, we had to have those annulled. One was to a minor mob figure. Vince was not minor. And Buddy Flynn was a band leader with a long history of narcotic use. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They were both louses. Marrying a third louse ain't gonna do me no good. I've offered you some very suitable clean young men. Pretty boys, saps and swishes. That was Scarlett Johansson and Josh Brolin in the best film of 2016. Yes, that's my opinion. Hail Caesar. Written directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, of course. That massacre part of the show that featured reviews of Wes Anderson's Asteroid City and Celine Song's past lives. So why that scene from Hail Caesar? 
Rebecca Williams in Lexington, Virginia, says another meta movie about actors in movies featuring a performance by Scarlett Johansson as an actor playing an actor dwelling on her reputation. Set in the 1950s with similar Cold War anxieties running throughout, not to mention another charming cowboy played by Alden Ehrenreich rather than Rupert Friend. Thank you, Rebecca, for that. Look at all that. Nicely done. It is Hail Caesar with Josh Brolin as the studio's Mr. Fixer and Scarlett Johansson as an impregnated mermaid, says Aaron Gordon. Johansson is the obvious connection with the week's show in Asteroid City, but so is the time period of 1950s America. Brolin's character in the film is being aggressively recruited by an aerospace company heavily involved in the military-industrial complex, and although I haven't seen Asteroid City yet, it sounds like the constant anxiety and search for control omnipresent in that film, shares a lot of traits with Brolin and Hail Caesar, a guy whose entire job is trying to exercise control over the chaos of the peak studio era. He ends up turning down the cushy Boeing job as he embraces the chaos, a not dissimilar conclusion to just keep telling the story from Asteroid City, which is what the viewer is left with in Hail Caesar as the camera rises over the studio lot in the final shot. Aaron Gordon going deep. Love the insights there and the connections between the two films. Thanks to all of our listeners who submitted an entry, Josh, and who made some of those connections, including very many who pointed out that both films also do feature the luminous Tilda Swinton. Reach in to the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Rita Jefferson from right here in Chicago. Congratulations, Rita. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt or tote bag. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We have two really good options this week. They'd both be fun to perform. We've made our choice. We'll never know which one would have been more entertaining or which one would garner more entries. We're going to stick with our commitment, though, to this scene. And Adam, I, you didn't lobby for this, but you're getting what I'm assuming is a dream opportunity. <laughs> I, I feel like there yeah. are probably nights you wake up from a literal dream where you've been this person. Maybe. Let's see how that translates into your performance. We'll see how I do. We are going to change the names because it would make it even more obvious than yes. it already <laughs> might be for some of you out there. Of course, the only hint we're going to give you, it does tie in very directly in multiple ways with a topic we are discussing in detail yes. on this episode. You started off, so I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Are you ready to speak trippingly on the tongue? Josh? I am. I'm ready. I'm more ready for my dialogue than my sound effects. <laughs> but let's go anyway. Here we go. And action. Jesse, where is Steve? At supper. At supper. Where? Not where he eats, but where he's eaten. A certain convocation of politic worms are eaten at him. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable service. Two dishes, but to one table. That's the end. Ugh! Ugh! Where is Steve? In heaven. Sent thither to see. If your messenger find him not there, seek him in the other place yourself. Uh, ah, But indeed, if you find him not within the month, you'll nose him as you go upstairs into the lobby. <laughs> and, 
and scene. I noticed that your punching seemed to go longer than my dialogue. You, you really wanted to give it to me, didn't you? I mean, I'm just trying to do what's in this script. I think there was a little more than a, uh, uh. <laughs> in your mind. <laughs> Okay, well, that was brutal, and that's why we call it Massacre (laughs) Theater. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title, along with your name and location, to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 24th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Really, we're we're all winners. (laughs) Ugh. Ugh. Kind of hurts my hand. Mm. Fair lady. Your chariot awaits. You've been eavesdropping? <laughs> eavesdropping and can't help but here. I think I belong in the latter category. So, uh, icy hot. You offering me a ride home? I'm offering you a lift. If when I'm ready to leave, you are too. And when are you thinking about leaving? Truthfully, I'm not thinking about it. When I do, you will be the first to know. We get back into our top five actor-director duo since... 2000 with Kurt Russell and Rose McGowan in Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, Russell's stuntman Mike, the first of three collaborations with Tarantino. And that was the pick, Josh, of listener Dave Mitchell in Norfolk, Nebraska. He thinks the Russell-Tarantino duo is one of the best, and there's a lot to choose from just from Tarantino's body of work since 2000. Here's Dave. When you mentioned this top five, my mind immediately went to Quentin Tarantino and Kurt Russell. Russell was in Death Proof, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think through the 2000s and 2010s, we've seen Tarantino's filmmaking increasingly feature a heightened reality, whereas earlier movies such as Reservoir Dogs included only things that would actually happen in real life. Kurt Russell has been the perfect actor to embody this larger-than-life filmmaking approach. In Death Proof, the sequences involving meeting his victims at the bar, giving Pam her death ride, and then the collision on the dark highway all make great use of Russell's almost cartoonish approach to the character. Russell is by far the best part of The Hateful Eight, and although it is a bombastic, over-the-top performance, it includes gentle touches like him tearing up while reading the Lincoln letter. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he has a small role but also helps the movie with perfectly placed voiceovers. When you come to the end of the line with a buddy who is more than a brother and a little less than a wife, getting blind drunk together is really the only way to say farewell. No, I'm not even going to try to do Russell. Like other actors in the Tarantino regulars club, DiCaprio, Samuel Jackson, Michael Parks, Russell matches the tone Quentin is going for almost perfectly every time. So says Dave. Yeah, I think Dave's on to something there. Love Kurt Russell. Love him in those three movies. We have reviewed two of those movies here on the show. And if I recall correctly, you liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood considerably more than you liked The Hateful Eight. I don't know how you feel about Death Proof, but I love all three of those films and am a big fan of the Russell performances. Yeah, Death Proof needs a revisit from me, to be honest, to say. But but you've got me, you've got me right on those other two. Definitely prefer Hollywood. And yeah, probably my lack of love for Hateful Eight is one reason that pairing didn't make my list. Sorry, Dave, but I will move on to the pairing that is in my number two slot, and it's Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almodovar. So looking at their collaborations, we've got Volver in 2006, Broken Embraces 2009, I'm So Excited, Pain and Glory, and then Parallel Mothers. I think this might be the one for me that's hardest to imagine one of them working without the other, even though it's happened so many times. I I hear one name 
and the next name that pops in my head is the other person's name. That's just how it works. Volver from 06, an out-and-out masterpiece, my favorite by far of the Almodovars I've seen, and I like quite a few of them. So again, we're looking at this quality-quantity thing. The quality box is checked for sure. Cruise is just, you stole my word. I forget where you used it, Adam. You mentioned, describe something as luminous. That's the only way I can talk about her in Volver. Luminous in what is essentially a ghost story. She works so well. But then look at these other titles. Broken Embraces, a lesser film to my mind than Volver, but I think as good as it is because of Cruise, there's this moment that always comes to mind. She she plays a call girl turned secretary turned actress, and there's this moment where she comes out of the bathroom after this laborious session with a quote-unquote benefactor. She thinks he might have died in bed, and the look on her face, there's surprise, there's relief, there's slight guilt, and a little bit of amusement too. It's all there at once. So she's so good in Broken Embraces. She has a very small part in I'm So Excited. So that one doesn't really tip the scales too much for me. But consider Pain and Glory, a 2019 top 10 film for me with Cruz in flashbacks as the mother to the film's main character, a film director. Antonio Banderas plays that director as an adult so good in what is the lead role, but Cruz also gave one of the best performances of the year as the mother in those flashbacks. Parallel Mothers, the most recent film they did together, I did like less, but man, the way Elmodovar shoots Cruz, there are these fades to black. I think we talked about this, Adam, uh, at one point. Fades to black where he's holding on her face uh, and then the, the screen just kind of dissipates. It's like Marlena Dietrich level iconography going on there. It's just astonishing. So this has been quite a run for the two of them since 2000. I think she brings this bombshell glamour and beauty to his movies while he gives her the arena to prove she's so much more than a bombshell. And I love that dynamic between the two of them. I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if this is something we've really gotten into yet. I'm not sure who benefits more from the partnership, if if you can say that. This feels like such a perfect equilibrium when you look at Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almodovar. I think you're so right. This pairing was one I immediately penciled in as at least an honorable mention. And when I was going through and having to fine-tune the list, I did run into, here again, a little bit of a numbers problem. Volver, seen it, discussed it, love it. Also, we saw and discussed Pain and Glory, which I think is very good. But I didn't see I'm So Excited. I still haven't caught up with Parallel mothers. And I couldn't remember whether or not I had seen Broken Embraces. I went back to Letterboxd. Turns out I did log it, but we didn't discuss it on film spotting when it came out. And I really remember almost nothing about it. So I still almost tried to make a case for this pairing <laughs> because of what you said, Josh, the fact that I can't think of Almodovar without thinking of Cruz and yeah. vice versa. I simply can't. But I really only had those two films to go on as good as they are. Well, that's all right. I got you covered, so we're good. My number two is going to reference an actor who we just heard mention in relation to Quentin Tarantino, Leonardo DiCaprio. The director, in this case, though, is Martin Scorsese. They have made six movies together. Well, that's if you count Killers of the Flower Moon coming out later this year, going back to Gangs of New York in 02. And sometimes, most often with our top five lists, we have to lobby, we have to make cases, personal cases for our choices. Sometimes, Josh, I think they're just obvious right answers, and I think that's the case here. Because it's DiCaprio, 
and Scorsese, and I feel like I could probably just move on from there. If I applied the multiplex test, the truth is it really could just say Scorsese and not mention DiCaprio at all, and that's the first movie theater I'm going to walk into. I actually haven't seen two of these films. One, because I wasn't at Cannes, and Killers of the Flower Moon hasn't been released yet. The other, I just haven't caught up with still. The Aviator from 2004 is a DiCaprio-Scorsese major blind spot for me. I will remind folks that that was the year before film spotting started, and not making time for and not being able to see movies like The Aviator regularly is a reason why film spotting started. Still need to see that film, but even if you took those two out, Josh, this duo is still coming in at number two for me. You've got two very good movies and performances in Gangs of New York and Shutter Island that I'd love to see again, and I think would be even better, and I'm sure I would appreciate the performances even more than I already do. But then you've got two others that, for me, are quite possibly among the 20 best movies and performances of the last 20 years. That's The Departed and The Wolf of Wall Street. And it's funny how, as you do some research on these picks, and you try to get some insight as to why these actors and directors love working with each other, here again, the same words and phrases, the same ideas come up. Scorsese said this about DiCaprio. He goes to these weird places that are so difficult and convoluted. And through the convolution, somehow there's a clarity that we reach. And usually it's in the expression. It's in his face, in his eyes. There's something in his face that the camera locks into in his eyes. The slightest movement, we know it. I think DiCaprio is one of those actors who can match the intensity of Scorsese's filmmaking, but that doesn't mean that the acting has to be big or busy. Sometimes it is. But I think more often than not, Josh, it means the opposite, really. They can't be and don't need to be competing with each other. Actually, we need to see some restraint in DiCaprio's acting. And it makes me think of a clip that's popped up on social media for some reason for me a bunch lately, where the writer of Goodfellas, Nicholas Pileggi, is talking about collaborating with Martin Scorsese on Goodfellas. And the scene, that great shot, really, where De Niro's Jimmy Conway makes the decision that he's going to whack Maury. Sunshine of Your Love by Cream is, is playing on the soundtrack. And it's just this slow push in on De Niro's face with Sunshine of Your Love playing. Turns out, Scorsese says in the clip that they, they changed it to 32 or 36 frames per second to heighten the scene and, and draw it out a little bit. And it's, it's the performance by De Niro where you just get this gleam in his eye. It tells you everything you need to know about what he's thinking. We don't even see what he's looking at. We don't need to see what he's looking at. We don't need him to articulate what he's thinking. The gleam in his eye and the way the camera pushes in with that music choice tells us everything that we need to know. And I bring that up only because I'm not saying, because who needs to get into this question. I'm not saying that DiCaprio could play Jimmy Conway or would be a better or worse Jimmy Conway than Robert De Niro, but I am saying that it's so easy for me to picture Leonardo DiCaprio in that scene or a very similar scene with that camera pushing in and just the gleam in his eyes conveying all of that information. That That's the magic that 
a movie star, a true movie star like DiCaprio can give you. Now, I think you could also find DiCaprio in a movie like Silence. You're telling me he couldn't play either the Adam Driver or the Andrew Garfield part? I think he probably could. I think he can do just about anything, and I think he's certainly capable of doing just about anything when he's working closely with a master like Scorsese. My highly trained Stratonites. My killers. My killers who will not take no for an answer. My warriors who will not hang up the phone until their client either buys... So not so obvious a pick for me, which, which, you know, which is probably why you're presenting. This is so authoritative Uh (laughs) and it's not, it's not just because of the Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, we have our well-established differences there and I will say DiCaprio has some incredible moments in it, but also as part of my larger problem with it is, is functioning as a straining comedy. I think his performance is part of that. I, I think for me, it's also just looking over at some of those titles. I love him in The Departed, and I love him in Shutter Island. He's both playing variations on the weasel there, and he's one of mm-hmm. those actors who, though they're big dreamboat stars, I think they're at their best when they're a little weaselly and playing guys you don't quite like. And I think The Departed and Shutter Island bring that out in him. Uh, the Aviator and Gangs of New York are movies I'm just you know not as high on overall um, as Scorsese films as you. But you also, Adam, you know, before you even opened the De Niro can of worms, it was burbling in the back of my mind because I'm thinking, why am I? Why does it not have that? And maybe this will all change with Killers of the Flower Moon. Why does the multiplex pull not as strong for me when I hear? that DiCaprio and Scorsese are being paired up again. I'm not disappointed by it. I, you know, I'm not turned away by it. I'm intrigued by it, but it doesn't have that. Oh, this is going to be amazing for me. And it's something more than just the track record. I walked through. I think it's, I think it's the De Niro problem and this is not fair. You're right. It's not fair to DiCaprio. It's not fair to Scorsese or the movies they've made together. But when you, when you have a director so aligned for what a good two to three decades with one actor has made masterpieces with that actor and then shifts gears reasonably understandably with another actor, the point of comparison is inevitable. And I've always felt like this is, it's a fine choice, but I still find myself somewhere in the back of my head thinking, yeah, you know, but it's, it's just, it's, but it's not De Niro. Yeah, you admit that that's not totally fair, but I would spin it the other way and say, for me, no, that would certainly not be fair to really anybody. We're talking about De Niro and De Niro and Scorsese. But if any actor has the filmography, has the list of performances, has the overall talent to pick up that mantle, I think we've seen it from DiCaprio. I think that he has been a worthy successor in that pairing. And I do want to say that my being authoritative or trying to be isn't so much about trying to say that you're just wrong, Josh, as it is me just acknowledging to the audience that it's a boring choice. I know it's a boring choice. It's more fun to talk about people like Adam Driver and like Michael Shannon, where I do feel like I have to convince people. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of convincing here, except maybe with you. And I've given up on that (laughs) already. (laughs) But for me, those two together, I know I'm going to consistently get really high quality, interesting work, period. 
Fair enough. Yeah. I think that's that's completely accurate to say about their pairing. And I don't mean that I sigh when I hear that these two are teaming up again. Right. It's definitely not at that point. So I had another quandary with my number one pick. It's sort of the Coen brothers quandary again, because what was I going to do with Wes Anderson? Where to go? I'm feeling like I'm Steve Zissou here, not wanting to hurt Klaus's feelings. Who am I going to put on B-Squad here? And that is tipping my hand because in the end, it's got to be Bill Murray. It's got to be Steve Zissou himself as my favorite Wes Anderson on-screen collaborator. We've mentioned most of these films in the course of this show already, but The Royal Tenenbaums, not their first film together, but their first since 2000. That was 2001. Then you have Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Darjeeling Limited, very, very small part there. Fantastic Mr. Fox. He has a voice role. Moonrise Kingdom, wonderful as Francis McDormand's counselor, husband, Grand Budapest Hotel. He shows up briefly. Isle of Dogs, more voice work. French Dispatch, briefly. And then Asteroid City, I don't know if we count. Um, he was, you know, supposed to be playing the Steve Carell part in that contracted COVID just before filming. So he ended up getting cut out. And he and Jason Schwartzman and Anderson did make sort of a meta promotional featurette with Murray as a, a producer of one of the films that I did watch. So I don't think that really counts. I don't think they need that collaboration for them to be my number one pairing here. I mean, I could write a book on their work together, but I'm going to boil it down to two words for us here, Adam. Mirthful melancholy. I think that was a somewhat latent quality of Murray's persona. It was there, but somewhat latent, and it really came to the fore with Rushmore. In 98, not eligible for this list, but just pointing out that's where they started. And I do think it's something he has honed ever since with Anderson. Mirthful melancholy is also maybe a definitive way to talk about Anderson's narratives. These are comedies, but they skirt around the terror of suicide. They skirt around grief, estrangement in general. Something like that is always involved. For me, this has never been better expressed in a Murray performance, in concert with the overall film, than in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, where he plays this washed-up Jacques Cousteau type who receives a visit late in life by the son he sort of never knew he had, played by Owen Wilson. I'm sorry I never acknowledged your existence all those years. It won't happen again. I mean it. You are my son to me. Almost more so. See, for me to meet a guy like you at this time in my life, I don't know. Uh, it's just, I want to communicate my feelings to you. But, So that's Murray, who is on B-Squad. You could go Owen Wilson. You could go Jason Schwartzman, especially after one of my favorite performances of the year so far in Asteroid City. You could go with Adrian Brody. I don't think a top of mind choice, but mm -hmm. look at his so good. I, he was perfect when he showed up and joined the ensemble for Darjeeling Limited, but also Fantastic Mr. Fox, Grand Budapest Hotel, French Dispatch, and yes, Asteroid City. I can't decide who of them should be B-Squad leader. I'm going to let listeners tell me that. A-Squad, though, that is Bill Murray. All right, plenty of Anderson talk from me, but if listeners do want more, quick note here, I want to invite everyone to the TC Movie Club, something I do for the day job. Had film spotting faces pop up here and there in some of our other earlier gatherings, so that's always good to see. But our next one is Anderson-themed. It's going to be coming up here on July 24, 8 p.m. Central. 
we're talking about Wes Anderson's Restoration Cinema, looking at his whole filmography, and of course, talking a lot of Asteroid City. So if you want to be a part of that, you just sign up. We'll shoot you an email with a Zoom link. You can do that at thinkchristian.movieclub. And I also, to set the table for that, made a video essay about Rushmore specifically in the context of this. So that is over on the Think Christian YouTube page if you want to check that out. So yeah, I've just been soaked in Wes Anderson lately, as you might expect. Rewatched Isle of Dogs the other day. It's a good time to be alive, Adam. (laughs) Not surprised by this choice and not disappointed at all by the choice either. It's funny, we say so often here that you're a bigger Wes Anderson fan than I am, and that then makes it sound like I'm not a huge Wes Anderson fan, but I am. And I'm also a huge fan of Bill Murray's work in those films. I do think that Rushmore is kind of the the specter hanging over this choice for me where I can't separate that performance of Bill Murray from his work with Wes Anderson. And of course, it it's not eligible for this list. He'd have a greater shot of the list if we we pushed it back a few years. And this is not to take away from your choice at all you do have a different relationship with these films, including you've seen most of them multiple times and I have not. Just going through the thought process for me, looking at all those titles, I looked at Steve Zissou. I said, okay, he's the lead and he's great in that. It still happens to be my least favorite Wes Anderson film. Then I've got this other category where I remember Murray and his character in the film, but I wouldn't really say it's among the key performances or characters in the movie. It's not a reason why I like the movie. Tenenbaums. He's the psychiatrist married to Margot, right? Yep. Moonrise Kingdom. He's married to McDormand. He's the dad. Is that right? You got it. Okay. And in French Dispatch, he's the editor. I don't remember his name in any of those films. That's all I remember. I don't remember him at all, at all in the Darjeeling Limited the Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Grand Budapest Hotel, or Isle of Dogs. Can't tell you who he played, what character he was. I'm sorry for you. I don't know what I, yeah. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> no, I don't I don't want you to say anything. I just want to acknowledge that's why I couldn't really consider Murray myself. It is that, yeah, that ensemble approach of Wes Anderson's, but it's also more about me and my failing. Yeah, if you don't have the attachment to the performances. I don't have the attachment. Yeah. And I haven't seen them or I haven't seen some of those films more than once. The Darjeeling Limited is definitely one of them. You bring up a good question, though, and and it is pertinent to this exercise, is the Rushmore performance. Because part mm-hmm. of me would say, even though it's supporting, it might it might be the better performance than as Steve Zissou. But in terms of this this quality I'm circling around and mm-hmm. what embodies that the most, I think Zissou was the chance for it to be at the forefront, which made it enough for me to really be the anchor of this list. And yeah, those other ones that, you know, didn't resonate as strongly with you for me resonated more and also are just kind of like gravy on the top of that. Longtime listeners surely could have predicted Bill Murray and Wes Anderson is your number one. A lot of them probably could predict my number one as well. I'll give you the titles, waking life tape, Before Sunset, Fast Food Nation, Before Midnight, and Boyhood. That is Ethan Hawke and Richard Linklater. Of those six, Tape is the only one I'm not so high on. Also a movie I've only seen once when it came out back in 2001. But you've got two of the best films, here again for me, of the last 20 years in Boyhood and Before Sunset. With Midnight, 
and Sunset, you've got two-thirds of this trilogy that is one of the all-time great movie collaborations between Linklater, Hawk, and Delpy, where they are developing those characters and those scripts together. You've got, I think, in this pairing, one of cinema's best writers of dialogue joining forces with one of cinema's best talkers. And when I say that about Hawk, I mean on screen, off screen, in character, or out of character, just being Ethan Hawk. There are a few people I'd rather hear muse about anything, but especially about art and the process of creating art than Ethan Hawk. His thoughtfulness, his knowledge, and mainly, I think, his, his curiosity. As much of an authority as he often sounds like, what really comes through more than anything is that he's someone who is curious. And like Linklater in his films, he is so often displaying this determination to seek knowledge and to seek truth. And these films they work together on are sometimes literally journeys, but they also all just feel like them. They feel like these explorations of truth. Even something like Fast Food Nation, a movie I do quite like, was in my top 10 films of that year. That, of all the films here, could be so heavily didactic. It's based on a nonfiction book about food production and food systems and how animals are mistreated and how workers are mistreated. Again, it's all there to be so heavily didactic, and that doesn't come through at all in Linklater's telling of this material. Ethan Hawke has a small part in that film, but when he shows up, and if I remember correctly, kind of acts as a bit of a father figure. I think he's an uncle maybe to the character he's talking to in the film. You you feel immediately comfortable and at home. You know, you know where you're at. You know you're in a Richard Linklater picture when Ethan Hawke starts talking. And I know we've spent a fair amount of time on this scene, especially when we did our top five Linklater scenes. But if you go back to Boyhood and that conversation between him as the dad to Eller Coltrane and the the son asking him about how there's really no magic in the world, is there? There's no elves or anything. Who, who else was Linklater going to have reply to the son and provide that seasoned wisdom and the counter the counter to the son's very matter-of-fact claim that there isn't any magic in the world. Who else but Ethan Hawke was going to do that and sell it as convincingly as he does? There's no, like, real magic in the world, right? What do you mean? You know, like, elves and stuff. People just made that up. I don't know. I mean, what makes you think that, that elves are any more magical than something like like a whale? You know what I mean? What if I told you a story about how underneath the ocean there was this giant sea mammal that used sonar and sang songs, and it was so big that its heart was the size of a car, and you could crawl through the arteries. I mean, you'd think that's pretty magical, right? Yeah. Or later in the film... Talk about the Beatles in the car and the mixtape that he made for his son. He calls it the Black Album. I looked it up. Ethan Hawke's only five years older than me, but I kind of still want Ethan Hawke to be my dad. <laughs> can he just, can he be my dad? And that's, that's because of Richard Linklater. 
that's because of their work together. And my my perception of Hawk is shaped by a lot of things. It's shaped by my own interview of him a few years back, other roles, other interviews, the Woodward Newman documentary he made. But it is really shaped by those roles he developed with Linklater. Not the roles he was given, but the roles that he and Linklater developed together. And that that signature stamp, that personal stamp that he puts on them. Yeah, I think knowing this would be your number one, even without asking, made it much easier for me to just kind of slot it to honorable mentions, even though it probably deserves a spot on my list. I think Boyhood and the two before films alone would be enough of an argument. If Before Sunrise, the first one, had been within this time range, I Mm -hmm. would have just, you know, had to fight you for having it on my list too. But really glad to see it on yours because it definitely deserves a spot. Those are our top five actor-director duos since 2000. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. We've heard a few honorable mentions along the way. Any others you want to include? Yeah, just quickly, a couple have already come up that I did consider in our conversation, but we have not talked about Adam McKay and Will Ferrell yet, who, I mean, you look at Anchorman in 04, Talladega Nights, oh, uh, it's about time. I think I need my annual dose of Talladega Nights, Adam. It's been too long. That's 06. Step Brothers, I did revisit recently. Forgot how many great comic actors are in that, aside from Will Ferrell. Really good. I love the other guys. And then Anchorman 2, it's fine. But still, I think this is a wistful pick, too. Like, Adam McKay, please make another Will Ferrell movie. I mean, I know the world has a lot of problems, but sometimes <laughs> sometimes a movie like Talladega Nights solves those problems for people. I would, um, I gave them some serious consideration. And then one more here. Uh, Nicole Hall of Center has come up within the context of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Keener. Yes. I think the two of them have made Hall of Center's two best films. Enough said. And you hurt my feelings. But Man, we've got to acknowledge her work with Keener from the start of her career. Lovely and amazing friends with money. Please give enough said. I'm a big fan of all of those films and yeah, made this. It would have been a tougher choice. I I might have even put her on if we didn't have these two Julia Louis-Dreyfus films already with hopes of a third. All mine have been mentioned so far except for two. You had Song Kang-ho and Bong Joon-ho, Almodovar and Cruz, Wong Kar-wai, Tony Leung, the other two that I would throw out, they just need, even though they hit the three, they hit the requirement, they just need one more great collaboration to really vault them into the conversation where they could be in that top five to seven. Colin Farrell and Martin McDonough, they've got two of them within Bruges and the Banshees of Sharon. I also do like Seven Psychopaths and Farrell has a major role in that, but it's, it's not on the Banshees or in Bruges level. And how about Ryan Johnson with Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Go back to Brick, the Brothers Bloom, and then Looper, where he obviously is the star or the key, the central figure in all of those films. Maybe maybe just need one more again yeah, I think from so. those two. I, think I, know, I know he pops up as sort of the voice of the, the clock or whatever in Knives Out 2, but another, another Brick or Looper-like effort would cement that. Exactly. Uh, that's it for me. And maybe it's my fault in underappreciating Brothers Bloom. I only saw it once many years ago. I always mean to take another look at it. That's where I am at with them as well, though, is there's it's just not quite at the level of those other two. I need that third myself. 
Those are our picks, which you can find over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. Our entire top five archive is there. And Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find us at Film Spotting and at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. We're asking you to choose the first four Mission Impossibles from four different directors, or would you rather have the most recent two, both directed by Christopher McQuarrie. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener-supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For only 5 bucks a month, you can listen to the show early, and you'll get an ad-free version. Plus, you'll get Sam's weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. Right now, we do have our Ask Us Anything show for July up and available. Family members also have the option of getting access to the entire archive of Film Spotting episodes. What you'll find in there? Anderson and Murray collaborations going back to the Darjeeling Limited and Sacred Cow reviews of the Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore. You can find my conversation from 2018 with Ethan Hawke, episode 696, definitely showing his curiosity and espousing some wisdom, maybe my favorite conversation in the show's history. And you can hear reviews of Hawke and Linklater collaborations like Boyhood, Before Midnight, Fast Food Nation, Alas, Before Sunset came out eight months before the debut of this show. There's DiCaprio Scorsese reviews going back to 06 with The Departed, all of Michelle Williams and Kelly Reichert's films together, and yeah, Driver Baumbach collaborations as well, going back to Francis Ha and Bong Joon-ho and Song Kang-ho. Going back to The Host, that was my first Bong Joon-ho film, 2006, reviewed here on Film Spotting. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can get all the information and sign up. In limited release, a new movie called Final Cut. It is a zombie comedy from Oscar-winning director Michelle Hazanavicious. It stars Roman Dury and Bernice Bejo. I like both of those performers quite a bit. Maybe I need to see Final Cut, Josh. Tasha Robinson, our colleague from The Next Picture Show, she dug it. She calls it a zombie movie noises off. Sure. Lakota Nation versus the United States is out. Our friend and colleague Mariah E. Gates gave it five stars, calling it an angry doc that is also incredibly beautiful and spiritual and made from a place of hope. I do really want to see this next one, Theater Camp, co-written and directed by Molly Gordon. I am almost done with season two of The Bear. Didn't know Molly Gordon was going to pop up. I was already interested in this film, and I already enjoy Molly Gordon from movies like Booksmart and Shiva Baby. But she's electric in her few scenes. She's a relatively minor character in The Bear, but she's electric in that film. And I think she's just such a talented actress. So excited to see Theater Camp, which also stars Ben Platt, Patty Harrison, and Ayo Edebiri, who's one of the co-stars of The Bear. In wide release, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, that is the movie we will catch up with and discuss on next week's show. We'll have to round it out with something, Josh. And if anyone's got any good ideas, send them our way. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. 
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.